Would you find a Bible and turn there to Matthew chapter 5? I do not know if Chase mentioned it to you uh, the week that I was out on a Sunday night uh, a few weeks ago, but he and I were discussing again uh, this week, frankly, how difficult uh, the Sermon on the Mount has proven to be uh, for preaching and for understanding and for applying to life. Um, sometimes it is the simplest of things that, that prove to be the most difficult to truly know and to apply faithfully. Uh, so we appreciate your patience and your kindness as we uh, labor in trying to walk through this portion of God's Word with you. It is good for our souls. We come tonight to a passage that I would not have chosen. <laughs> um, we, we come tonight, and, and I'm going to include two together. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But we're going to look both at the passage where Jesus teaches on divorce. It's very brief. It's, it's not one of the lengthier passages in the New Testament about that. Um, and, and then also tie that together with and lead into his teaching on oaths. Again, very practical theology and very practical teaching. But, but let me begin with some disclaimers. Number one, those of you that know me, and particularly those of you that have spent any time with me in marriage or pre-marriage counseling, will know because I will have told you and you will have seen that I have extreme views on marriage. And I'm not apologetic about those views in any way. Uh, I have extreme views on quite a few things. Uh, abortion would be another, and I'm not apologetic about that. Uh, that, that is because I, I desire deeply and labor to build those extreme views on the Bible so that I think and I pray that the extreme view that I hold is because of the Bible's extreme view on the topic. Um, I know, however, that I cannot do that perfectly. So I, I do not stand up here telling you that I have all the answers. And so I enter into... Uh, teaching and discussions on those topics like divorce, I want you to know, comfortable with some tension. Th there is quite a number of questions and quite uh, a variety of differing views by who I consider to be faithful men and brothers. Some of my closest friends in ministry even uh, hold to different views, particularly of divorce and remarriage, um, than, than what I believe the Bible teaches about that topic. And so I would encourage you to let's have the discussion. Uh, you can help me be better. Maybe I can help you be better. And together we can sharpen one another to understand God's word more faithfully. But what I will commit to you tonight is that I'm going to try to do the best that I can uh, with the leading and the understanding that the Holy Spirit has provided me to open God's word for you and to teach on that subject. Secondly, I want you to know that I have no intention of answering every question about marriage, divorce, and remarriage tonight. I want us to consider it only insofar as it comes to us from the mouth of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's very important to me because we're doing a study of the Sermon on the Mount. So this passage, these two passages, they come to us where they do because in some way they serve the purposes of Jesus in the Sermon. And so I want us to consider the teaching and its uh, impact and application in light of how it serves that purpose and what it is that Jesus is doing in bringing these topics up. So I just want you to know where I'm going and what my goal is. 
We're going to do that in three stages. I'm going to give some background and context for how I believe these verses fit that agenda and how they are to be viewed in this passage in light of the background of the passage. Then we're going to take divorce as a single topic and oaths as a single topic. So three separate sections. Try to tie them together, but in the two sections on the teaching, one on divorce and one on oaths, we're going to consider the same structure. One, the Mosaic law and the Pharisees' interpretation with regard to that issue. The teaching of Jesus in this passage on the issue. And the kingdom principle that he is appealing to, or principles that I think that he is appealing to in teaching on this passage here in this sermon. So there you go. That's where we're headed. That's the way we're going to do it. And I'll encourage and uh, look for your questions afterward. Uh, Turn to Matthew 5 then. We're going to begin reading in verse 31. And before we do that, we're going to pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word in all of its beauty and in all of its difficulty. Uh, God, it, it reminds us in the difficulty that we are not you. That our mind is not your mind that our ways are not your ways, and that apart from you opening our hearts and giving understanding, we would be able to read nothing, read your word and glean nothing good from it. So God, we desire uh, to know it, to, to, to live it and love it. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would help us, that you would open it to us, that even as we discourse with one another about those things that perhaps are not so clear, that you would give us charity and kindness. But God, above everything, make our commitment to the word as you reveal it to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 31. It was also said, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So a bit of context and how I want to try to tie these two passages together particularly and how I think they fit into the greater sermon here. Um, Jesus is teaching about his kingdom and the nature of life in his kingdom in an antithetical way. He is teaching about the nature of life in his kingdom over against the misinterpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees of the Mosaic law. It's very, very specific. So that his teaching then is to be understood as intentionally given in that very specific way and tone. Now that's important because we have to understand that Jesus is not rewriting or reworking or correcting the law. So when he says in these, there are six of them, I'll make mention of that again in a moment, you have heard that it was said or it was said to those of old, this formula for these practical examples that he's giving, okay? What he, we, we, we must understand that what he's not doing is saying that there was a problem with the law. 
What he's saying is that the law God gave has been profaned and misinterpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he's going to then engage in teaching in such a way so as to tear down their wrong views and reinterpret rightly so as to teach biblically and faithfully in a God-honoring way on that topic. Okay? He has already stated in the beginning of this, as we have already seen, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill them. So, so keep that in the front of your mind. He's not, he's not correcting God's law. God's law is not in need of correction. Okay? God, God gave it himself personally to Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. He has stated that he's not come to abolish either the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. So what's he doing? He's defining his relationship to the law and that of his ministry and teaching. Because he's going to stand over against a great deal of what they held to be law in the Jewish tradition. So so what he's doing is, at the beginning here, at the outset of his ministry, he's reorienting their mind to see that lest they think, oh, well, he's just come to do away with everything God's told us before. He wants to help them see that the problem was not with the law, but with the way that those laws have been interpreted and applied. So he's, he's showing them and teaching them about how he and his ministry and his teaching relate to the law. He has also given the command, as we've already seen already, so much so, his desire for the law to be upheld, so much so that he said, whoever does, does and teaches the law faithfully will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And that whoever relaxes the least of one of the commands and teaches others to do the same will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. So we understand as we approach these that Jesus has a high view of the moral law of God in its perfection and its continuance. I don't have time to revisit this, but even as he's talking about some of the civil and ceremonial laws... Those laws that continue as binding that he's talking about, none of them passing away, is the moral law of God that is eternal. The civil and the ceremonial laws were expressions of or outworkings of that moral law of God. So that they restrained sin and pointed to Christ and all that we've talked about both in Hebrews and in Matthew up to this point. But he has a high view of the perfection and the continuance of the moral law. So he says, so so, not one jot or one tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now that's important because with regard to the civil and the ceremonial laws, there is passing away, but it is because they have been fulfilled or accomplished, if that makes sense, in Christ. So after he sets himself up in his relationship to the law and proves by his own words and deeds that he has a high view of God's moral law, he moves on from declaration and command to explanation. Okay, so that beginning in verse 21, what you have are six separate sections, each designated by the formula, you have heard it said, or some form of that. So you see with anger, you've heard it said to those of old, verse 21. You see with lust that we looked at last time, you've heard it that it was said. And here with divorce, it was also said, that is before. Verse 33, and again, you've heard that it was said. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And verse 43, you have heard that it was said. You see this formula. So he's now engaging with them, as I said 
antithetically or over against the wrong views, the misinterpretations and applications that the scribes and the Pharisees had of the law that God gave his people. He is now engaging with them based on their profaning of that and teaching intentionally in such a way so as to correct the wrongs. Um, It's important to note, before we get to the text itself, that these six are not, they, they don't come to us completely unrelated to one another, okay? There is a progression. There is a movement so that you'll see next time, I can tell you, it's going to be retaliation and loving your enemies. You don't have to be a genius to see how those two things kind of coincide with one another. But what you find is that it's almost a lens so that Jesus begins to use these particular situations as exemplary of certain kingdom principles, not, not, that, not that they are unto themselves. And, and, and what happens is, is the lens sort of focuses in on an individual item as you move through the text, and then it focuses back out a bit and speaks more generally. So you see that even with what we talked about last time, generally speaking about the dangers, the severity, the significance of lust and adultery, focused back out. Now, tonight, he moves immediately in the next verses to focus right back in, using particularly the application of how that applies and affects the marriage covenant or marriage bond, right? Then he's going to move back out in light of seeing marriage as a covenant oath, a promise, to talk about oaths in general. So you see this sort of focusing in and focusing out, binding or constraining our view of what he's talking about, and then generalizing it a bit more and expanding it just a bit more. So I think it's important to note that they don't come unrelated to one another. There's a flow to the things that he's saying. And, and lastly, as we see these six, not only are they unrelated, they're not isolated. So he has no interest in identifying six individual issues of extreme priority. That, that's not his agenda. So much as his goal is to identify six individual issues that he can use as examples in order to communicate, as I said a moment ago, certain principles that govern the kingdom, right? So what is the principle at stake here? What is the principle for kingdom life or life in God's kingdom that applies universally to all Christians? I'll just give you one example because Chase dealt admirably with it last week with regard to immorality and lust. And that is that he said, the point here is not only to talk about adultery. He's using that as a springboard, if you will, as that which is exemplary to articulate for us the kingdom principle about the necessity and the importance of sexual purity in all forms, right? Whether you're single or married, whether you're committing adultery or fornication, whether you're whatever it is that you're dealing with, it has to do with purity across the board. So that he's using that as an opportunity or an example in order to show them about the kingdom principles that govern life in the kingdom of God. So it's it's against that background and with that understanding of these six issues in this particular section that we turn now to verse 31 in the topic of divorce. We're going to begin by considering the Mosaic Law and the Pharisees. The Mosaic Law and the Pharisees. Because he says it was also said, so he's talking about two things. Namely, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. But he is also making an allusion to the fact that this has been taught because it is a part of God's law. So that if you go back to the giving of the law, you will find where these 
items are listed there. But look at what he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that's, that's very interesting that he picks out uh, the one of three issues. If you go back to Deuteronomy 24 and you examine the section of the law where the issue of divorce is taken up, then what you find is, is that there are three very specific things that that law regulates. And understanding those three things helps us to see the point of the law. They were this. Number one, the law was given in order to regulate the chaos and the confusion and the rampant divorce that was taking place among God's people for all sorts of crazy, ridiculous, and sinful reasons. So that in Deuteronomy 24, right, the Mosaic law, one of the primary things that it does is it relegates divorce only for certain causes. Okay, that's, 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 that's a principle that is going to be important. The certain causes in Deuteronomy 24 are spoken of as uncleanness. Okay, uncleanness. Now, I'll tell you, it's not easy to parse out. You say, well, what is, that? What is the uncleanness? Well, there, there are different views on that. I will tell you that I think the uncleanness is sexual uncleanness, immorality, because of the way Jesus interprets it in the New Testament, because he applies that individual item specifically to that issue and that law. So I'm just going to go with what Jesus did here, but there are different views on that. But the, the certain cause was uncleanness. The second thing that it did was it regulated the divorces that happened, not only for only certain causes, but that it must be done in certain ways. You had to present her with a certificate of divorce. You say, well, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? Prior to the Mosaic Law, not only were people being divorcing at crazy rates for, for irresponsible, sinful reasons, there was absolutely no uh, seriousness or weight of consideration given to either marriage or the breaking of the marriage. And there was absolutely no protection then for the woman that was put out. In other words, if she, as we'll see with the Pharisees where it got to, you know, she could burn the chicken or not sweep off the porch just the right way. And you could find some irreverency or inconsistency in her and call her unclean. This is after the law. But prior to the law, whatever reason you divorced her, you just put her out. You just put her out. Well, the, pro- the problem then was no one knew why she had been divorced. There was no formality to it. And she was just out under the scrutiny of the world. That's a very dangerous place for a woman to be because of the seriousness of adultery. We're going to see later that in the Mosaic law, adultery is punishable by death, right? Because it was a very male-dominated society so that she would have a hard time finding a job. She would have a hard time finding a spouse. She would have, if, if that was appropriate or if she should. But you see the point. So part of what God was doing was heightening the seriousness both of marriage and of the breaking of marriage, our thinking and considerations about it and protecting those that had been through a divorce or received a certificate of divorce from just being left to the wolves of the world, right? So, so you had to present her with a certificate of divorce. The third thing that it did 
is it regulated that she must not remarry her first husband? So, so it would go something like this. If she was presented a certificate of divorce for a certain cause, and that cause was found to be biblical, then she was free to remarry. And if she did, and she received a certificate of divorce from her second husband, then under no circumstances would God ordain a return to the first. Most Christians never even thought about that. But that, that was one of the main things, the main three things that are dealt with in Deuteronomy 24. You say, well, why? What was the purpose of that enactment? The purpose of that enactment, again, was to heighten what had been so terribly diminished. That is the view of marriage. In other words, that we must take it so seriously so as to not see it as something that can just be walked into and out of and right back into again and out of again and back into again. Because it just doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. I'll put her out when she doesn't sweep just right. And when she goes and learns how to cook the chicken better, I'll just have her right back again. And you say, well, I don't mean to be too flippant. That's an under flippancy of the way that they viewed marriage. So prior to the law, there was all of this chaos and irregularity. And in the words of D.A. Carson, the Mosaic law, it came with regard to divorce, not to command divorce, but on account of sin to regulate and to make regular what was irregular and chaotic. I think that's helpful language. Because you say, well, why did God say anything about divorce? Didn't God believe in the permanency of marriage? As we'll see in a moment. The answer is absolutely yes. He talks about the two becoming one flesh union, leaving your father and mother and cleaving to your wife. The priority of marriage, the covenant bond of marriage, the indissolve, the permanency of marriage, that it is indissolvable, that it is not to be dissolved. Let no man tear asunder what God has put together. God designed marriage with perfection in mind and permanence in mind. It is only because of the chaos and the irregularity brought by sin that the laws about divorce in Deuteronomy 24 come to begin with. Because he's regulating the hardness and the wickedness of the human heart, as Matthew 19 makes clear. Okay? So, that's the Mosaic law. What about the Pharisees? Where had they gotten? Because however bad it was, Mosaic law, it, it only got worse. So the Pharisees and the scribes, in their nuanced, sinful interpretations of the Mosaic law, they hung on to very dearly the issue of the certificate. That's why the only one that is picked up on here by Jesus is you have heard it said, if a man wants to divorce his wife, let him give her a certificate. He's not advocating that, by the way, friends. He is acknowledging antithetically what they misunderstood and the part of the law they abused. What is it that they thought was so significant about the certificate of divorce? Well, it became an excuse for sin. So that as long as I gave her a certificate of divorce, I was in line with the law. As long as I made it official. As long as I took it serious. She burnt that chicken, she's out. Let me get that certificate that says chicken burner and hand it to her. That's, that's where they were. And so it got to be so out of hand that women were literally, I mean, that sounds, uh, that sounds trivial. Women were literally being put out for less than that removed from their families, from their way of life, from their livelihood as they were dependent upon their spouses, upon their husbands. And the Pharisees and the scribes had 
so profaned the perfect law that God had given that what they, what he meant to heighten the, to, 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 to magnify the seriousness and the permanence of marriage and to make it more difficult, not easier for them to divorce, they took and diminished the value of marriage, profaned God's creating of that covenant and and, and made it easier for people by giving them a legalistic check box that if they'll just check it, they are good to go. Right? So, hey, she, she doesn't come home on time one night and she, she doesn't get dinner fixed just right. Man, put, dude, give her a certificate, son, and get you another one. That was how it had gotten. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, that is, you guys have been teaching and you've been taught that all you have to do is give her a certificate, but I say to you. So now, what does Jesus say? What's the teaching of Jesus about divorce? He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, that is adultery. He makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, that is himself. Friends, that's tough, but that's plain enough. The teaching of Jesus is that marriage is more precious than these people could have ever known and that it is not to be taken lightly. Jesus' teaching is that divorce is a profoundly serious step. And Jesus' teaching is that is that that step is only allowable on the grounds of adultery. Now, that's just summarizing. Why? As I said a moment ago, because of the significance and the beauty and the permanence of marriage in the design and wisdom of God. Friends, marriage exists because God made it. And because God made it, it is a uniquely Christian reality. And it is a profoundly beautiful reality. It is the only human relationship that is ever spoken of as being an outward example or a picture in creation of the kind of love that Jesus has for his people. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What's he saying here? Well, let's go to Matthew 19. I think interpreting this passage rightly necessitates that we give a little bit of credence to what he says in Matthew 19. Because we see more of what the Pharisees were getting at. And you'll see some of what I've told you here just a moment ago. The issue is why. Why the divorce has occurred and whether or not it should have or could have, we'll say. Look at 19 verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? But they didn't put, that's not where they stopped. Look, for any cause. Now, let's just keep reading. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, he appeals to what God designed in marriage first. Permanence, beauty, covenant is not to be broken. Union. So they said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Notice here they misunderstand even in the question. Jesus did not command you to give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus will clarify. He'll clarify both their misunderstanding that there was a command to divorce rather than a permit or a permission. And he's going to clarify their question now about whether or not it can be done for any cause. Jesus is really good, guys. They were not going to catch him looking the other direction. Look at what he says. He's unbelievable. So he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses commanded you? No. Because you're sinful and have profaned what God designed in marriage, an allowance has been made. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he's going to clarify the first. Any cause, they say? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There it is. What were they looking for? They were looking for an opportunity to continue to devalue and diminish God's design for marriage by giving divorces for all sorts of reasons. And Jesus clearly says that that's not okay. Friends, nowhere in the Bible is divorce commanded. God created marriage to be permanent. That's the, the issue of adultery and causing her to commit adultery. I'll get to it in a moment. That's, that's the issue of the permanence of the marriage bond. What we know from Malachi, God hates divorce. And from Matthew 19, that it was not so from the beginning. It was not so by God's design. But in the words of D.A. Carson, the law about divorce came as a permission in order to regulate the irregular, to bring to, to bring clarity to the chaos and confusion, to, to restrain men's sin. That's what the law does. So what's this business about divorce and remarriage? Well, let me just give you a note here. I don't have time to expand on this. Adultery is the one thing because it is the most heinous way that the covenant vow that has been made can be broken. Friends, the only thing that you share with your wife that you do not share with anybody else is that sexual union and intimacy. You pray with other people. You go to hunting camp and spend the night with other guys. You understand what I'm saying? You spend time with them. You have dinner with them, right? Go on vacations with friends. You, You eat with, the only thing you share is that. Isn't that behind Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says that to go and to visit a harlot, what? The man that does makes himself one flesh with her. Well, if God has already taken man and wife and the two have been miraculously through covenant made one flesh, two becomes one. You can't take half of it and go become one with another without totally doing away with the covenant that has been made. So just a side note here. I think, there, I think there's wisdom and, 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 and good reason, as many, many scholars do, based on the profaning of the covenant reality to include perhaps absolute abandonment, things like physical abuse, leaving your family destitute, absolutely moving, all, you know, moving to China and never having anything to do with them again. I, Listen, there's a lot of debate about those things, a lot of discussion. I'm I'm showing you where I am. Because the issue at stake is the profaning of the covenant vow, 
I think, those, I think a very few, but a couple of those things might qualify as well. But, but what's clear enough is, as was the case in Deuteronomy 24, and is the case in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, that divorce for any cause is absolutely an abomination before God. That he hates it. And that it is only for certain cause of immorality, adultery, that divorce is ever to be allowed, even though it is not ever commanded. Um, let me just move on here. Uh, well, one last note about that. Why is that so? Well, let's, we'll get there. So, so, so the issue of remarriage, okay, why is it that he says, if you do divorce on any grounds other than this, what I have articulated, this allowance, then you make your wife commit adultery. Why? Because she is still bound to you. Because that covenant has not been broken. It has not been torn asunder and profaned. So that for her to go and remarry another is to commit adultery. And you cause anyone who marries her to commit adultery himself. You cannot have an adulteress without an adulterer. So why then, on the account of the absolute profaning of the covenant vow that was made, would Jesus and God make an allowance for remarriage under this certain circumstance? I would agree with those Sinclair Ferguson, so many others, they would say it is because the severity of the immorality, like we saw last week in the passage just above, as was reflected in the death penalty that was given to them under the old Mosaic law, if you were found in adultery, you were to be drug out and stoned because you have so profaned the covenant vow that you've made. Jesus is now saying that although we do not continue that civil practice, for that has been abolished and fulfilled and completed, you may live and you are free to live as if that person were dead. I think, that's, I think that's his point. That it is so serious and so profaning that you are free to go and remarry without the issue of adultery because the covenant has been broken. But outside of the breaking of that covenant, friends, how many... Mar- Man, you can go read statistics, guys. Christians are getting divorced just as much or more than the people in the world. The divorce rate in America is in the mid to high 50 percentile range. Over one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. And it's no different for God's people. Friends, people divorce. Married couples sit in my office. People divorce because they have fallen out of love. And because they don't prefer the way that their spouse now looks or the, so they have temperament changes as we age or this, that, or the other. And I don't, listen, we ha- marriage is difficult. But friends, the beautiful bond of the covenant of marriage in the Bible is for those that are committed to keep the vows that they made. Interestingly, the issue of death and living as if the person were dead because of the profaning of the vow in light of the Old Testament law Isn't it interesting that when we take the marriage vows before God, what do we say? Till death do us part. So that obviously if your spouse passes away, you're free to remarry, right? That is the case here. Now, very quickly, um, because I do want to get briefly to, man, it's seven o'clock. What kingdom principle is he appealing to? What's he trying to say about, uh, about divorce, about marriage. Well, I think three things very quickly. Number one, that God is the author of marriage 
and that he has designed it in beauty and permanence. That means that the concessions for divorce are for the restraint of sin and the chaos that sin created in the practice of divorce. And that although he makes an allowance because of sin, that is not even close to the same thing as commanding it. Friends, just because your spouse cheats on you doesn't mean that you should divorce her. I'm not going to tell you what you should do, but I will tell you that God is honored through forgiveness and repentance and restoration. Secondly, marriage then is a profoundly serious thing precisely because like God's interaction with sinners, it is a covenant union. And in that covenant union, two become one before God, the one flesh union. This is reflected, as I said a moment ago, in the reality that it is the only human relationship that is called and uh, called as displaying or picturing the covenant love that Christ has for his people. And number three, the last one, insofar as marriage is a covenant promise, the habit of Christian people is to reflect faithfulness to God in keeping the vows that we make. And I think that's actually one how this ties into the next. So it's not just in marriage. We're going to expand back out. You've heard that it said, see there, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord those things that you swore and let your yes be yes and your no be no. When we make these commitments and we take these vows, yes, marriages may be the most significant of those, humanly speaking, but in all aspects of life, the kingdom principle that's, being, that's overriding all of these teachings here is that Christians should be those people that keep the vows that they've made before the Lord. That's enough for tonight. We'll have to pick up oaths next week. May God encourage, inspire, and enable us by his spirit in the face of sin and chaos, even in our own hearts, to keep the vows that we've made, particularly to the ones we've committed our life to, our spouse. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for the, the beauty of the marriage relationship. Uh, God, thank you for the seriousness uh, that you've called us to, to deal with it uh, in. And, and, and God, thank you that there is forgiveness of sins in abundance. God, I pray for marriages all across Redeemer Baptist Church, those present here tonight and those not. God, I, I pray that you would uh, stoke the fires of passion and faithfulness and covenant love for one another in those marriages. God, I pray that husbands and wives would truly become one flesh. God, I pray that we would serve in the capacities as men and women, husbands and wives in the home and in the church that you've called us to. I pray that you would help us to think biblically and faithfully about all areas of life, including marriage. God, I pray that you would help us to restrain ourselves. God, that we would be restrained in our sinfulness, that we would not give uh, leeway to our sin and our desires. God, but that we would keep the vows that we've made to you and to our spouse. God, use our marriages here. God, use Christian marriages to point other people to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.